Hello and welcome to the February 2011 edition of Hell is for Hyphenates. I am writer-critic-superstar-child of Will Smith, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is... Hi there, I am uh, writer-director-unemployed-get-about um, Paul Anthony Nelson, and with us today is special guest villain... Should I say doctor? That sounds more yes. evil and villainous. Doctor Josh Nelson... Hyphen academic, hyphen critic, hyphen filmmaker, hyphen writer, hyphen unemployed wannabe. Yeah, I guess that's it. Hang, hang, hang on a second. <laughs> I, we've got two guys here with the surname Nelson, yes. who are both filmmakers and film critics. Next, you're going to tell me you're both barrack for Essendon or something. <laughs> that's crazy. Actually, <laughs> now that you mention what? it. What? What? <laughs> I've got them wearing name tags, listeners, so I can tell them apart. Well, we're Doctor and Mister, so that's, Doctor that's and how Mr. we tell each other apart. Yeah. Well, we're coming up on Oscar night. Uh, as we record this, we're only uh, a few hours or a couple of days away from the Oscars. And it's only appropriate to talk about uh, Big Mama, like father, like son, <laughs> completing the powerful Big Mama trilogy. I think this is going to be the one that wins all the Oscars. I think it's, it's a sweep. Be Lord of the Rings again. Yeah. yeah. Third one, it's just going to... Ten nominations, So this is wins. this is Martin Lawrence's Return of the King, yeah. is what you're saying. Right. Absolutely. But 127 Hours is up for Oscars, genuine mm. Oscars. Uh, what do you think of this? Yeah, I I I really dug it. I thought it was pretty cool. Um, uh, I think it gives the appropriate sense of time and desperation. Um, it's it's kind of jarring at the start because and and I believe that Aaron Ralston actually is like this because he's uh, the guy James Franco is playing is an adventure junkie and is used to getting into scrapes and whatnot. Mm. And when the rock falls on his hand, that's the inside. <laughs> not not Dwayne Johnson. <laughs> 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 Just climb out, Dwayne. <laughs> Seriously, I um, yeah, he's he's incredibly calm when it falls on his hand. And I know mm. your body goes into shock and whatnot, but it's like I'd be screaming like a baby. But other than that, mm. I thought that James Franco's performance was excellent. I thought visually, it's a synthesis of everything Danny Boyle has ever done. It looks like there's a you know there's touches of Slumdog and there's touches of um, a lifeless ordinary and there's a touch there's touches of Train Spotting and there's and it, it it seems like a real com- um, kind of uh, collected edition of Boyle's works, um, mm. but I think Franco gives it its soul. And um, the thing I really I really dug about it as well was there's this great notion of mental association. There's like a sequence where he's like he's thinking of the girls back home, and that makes him think of Sco- uh, the party, and it makes him think of Scooby Doo, then it makes him think of the theme song of Scooby Doo, uh, right. then it makes him think, think of when he's a kid, and it's just sort of the way your mind the life works. flashing before your eyes kind of yeah, but yeah. but but the way that your mind works every day. You know, particularly our generation. Free associating sort yes, of. Yes, yeah, yeah. I thought it did that really well. And, and when you've got all that time to yourself, that's going to happen. What did you think, Josh? Uh, look, I agree it was entertaining. And I thought it was, I think some of the mental association stuff was interesting. And that had been done before in, in like, uh, the Touching the Void, I think, sort of had that similar that. sort of flashback um, work in the sort of the mental disassociation. What... I struggled with and what I think my, my major criticism of it was that it's a film called 127 Hours and that this experience of this guy for, what, six days or, you know, my math is terrible, but trapped in this in this crevice and yet the film gave me no sense of time. It felt like oh. it, because of the, the overt style that, um, that Boyle uses, these zip pans and this shaky camera and the, the constant cutting back to flashbacks, the film felt as an experience it was it felt like a sort of a 60 minute film in which there was no I'd never got a sense of this sort of you know detachment or this drawn out sense of time or this longing or this waiting and for me it was sort of like well he's been down there for half a day and he's cut his arm off and then we're done and I felt found it really anticlimactic and I thought you know a different director 
you know, probably would have taken a different angle and like someone like Steve McQueen, you know, who directed Hunger or, mm. or, or even Cronenberg, this sort of the, the sense of detachment and, and, and isolation. I didn't kind of get it and I felt that sort of frustrating that, you know, you're going to name a film 127 hours and that for me there was no e- empathetic association. It felt mm. like the film buzzed past and, and it was entertaining, but it was a spectacle film as opposed to an experience film. I'm pretty much on the fence. Like, I'm, I'm, I agree with you both. I think my main problem with the film is that it's really a single event film it's pivoting on this one action that you're just waiting for and it feels like or it felt to me like as as true as the rest of the film might have been it felt like filler like we were just trying to whereas to compare it to something like buried which is one guy alone in a location that real and that had the benefit of being fiction so it could yeah you keep up the dramatic impetus and yeah but it still it still did keep the pace going uh more so than this i felt but uh maybe that's just an unfair comparison because i did like a lot of it so yeah i'm pretty much on the fence for that film and uh yeah so what else we got this month well what else we have um look we're all very, very busy people, and we probably don't have time to watch all the Spider-Man films and all the Harry Potter films and all the Twilight <laughs> films and oh watch Buffy <laughs> and watch Roswell. You know, that's a lot Roswell, of hours spent. Really? So you can just save time and watch I Am Number 4. Because <laughs> <laughs> it really is... It's, 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 it's very Every efficient. film ever made. Yeah. I've missed the first three, so, you know... I'm yeah, yes. I'd, I'd be lost. It's, it's like Star Wars. You come in at number four. Uh, no, I am number four. Is uh, I will say not as bad as it could have been. It is. It is quite well made. <laughs> right. DJ Caruso does a good job. Look, it's slickly directed. Look, he's. I think he's got talent based on on this film. I just uh, there's no creativity behind the ideas. It is. It is like a checklist of what makes money, what appeals to teens. Um, the way back, Peter Weir. Peter Weir returns. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got to say, I'm a huge Peter Weir fan. And one of the things I love is that he takes uh, films that wouldn't really appeal to me that much, like something like Master and does, Commander, and then makes a film that I love. And I, I, I have a lot of trouble discussing his films because I don't know why they work. Mm. I haven't. Fe- I think he's onto something because, as with Master and Commander, the way back works, and I can't figure out why. But I, I loved it. I think it, I think it's a work of genius. Work of genius. Work of genius. Wow. Well, it's Peter Weir. I have yeah, no problem saying he that. He is a genius. I, I've, I've long, I haven't seen this yet. Um, have you? Josh? No, neither. Again, sorry, I'm three for three. <laughs> Striking <laughs> out. I'm, I'm, I'm yeah, like, I have this theory. I, like, I think Peter Weir is our best working filmmaker. Mm. Austra- Australia's best working filmmaker. And again, it's a, that thing you can't quite put your finger on why, but there seems to be a David Leanness about him. You know, sort of this sort of inherent epic quality yeah, to a good all of his films. And they're also bloody immersive. Like, I remember Master and Commander. I've almost felt seasick because I felt that not because of any shaky Kelly was incredibly elegantly shot but you felt like you're on the damn boat yeah you know wind whistling through the background and yeah and he, and he makes you feel like you're walking from Siberia to India wow in the way back so you're exhausted after the film <laughs> my feet are gonna hurt yeah uh, <laughs> exactly yeah I can't wait to see that yeah very got, interesting got to check that out uh, you don't gotta check out uh, Clint, Clint Eastwood's Hereafter which is you should just have a show called You Don't Gotta Check Out <laughs> with Lee Zachariah do not see the following <laughs> or films Josh hasn't seen is also an you know, appropriate title you're well, right. Oh, yeah. No, I. Yeah. I, I want to see this one, but it's kind of cautiously. It's astonishingly bad. It really, really is. It, it, I don't think Clint could, like, make. He could he make rushes, bad films. It feels rushed. Yeah. It feels rushed. And even though I like Peter Morgan a lot of the time, uh, this is this is the worst thing he's written, I think. It's. 
Well, Michael Sheen's not in it. That's the problem. Well, yeah. <laughs> Tony Blair walks past <laughs> in the background. It's, it's very disconcerting. Uh, no, it, it really feels like um, propaganda for those uh, John Edwards type. Oh, really? Yeah, psychics. Awful. And you think it's going to be a metaphor. You think, okay, fine. He's a psychic who can talk to dead people. This will be used as a metaphor to explore death or explore grieving. Or exp- and there's nothing. It's not. It's it's surface. It's, just, it's like p- played completely straight, yep. like ghost. Yep. While we're on the theme of uh, really talented directors making really poor films, mm-hmm. uh, Tamara Drew from Stephen oh, wow. Frears, the yeah. very talented Stephen Frears, who has made films I absolutely love. I don't know why anyone wanted to make this film. This is. Didn't they make Stealing Beauty already? Uh, yes, they did, and from what I understand, that made had narrative sense that kind of moved <laughs> you know, along and Tyler. moves to a town ta- yeah, you know in, 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 in raptures a lot of old men you know that just seems to be what this is but a quaint yeah. English version it's, it's an ensemble except they can't decide whether it's an ensemble piece or uh, a lead she's the lead and you spend most of the time with other people uh, there isn't a likeable character in the film and just to clarify what I mean by likeable is you can have uh, well, relatable Relatable, but e- even even people who do bad things, you know, you can have likable murderers, you can have likable thieves, mm. you can have really horrible people who s- are still likable in your film. Uh, all of the characters in this film are completely unlikable, and you don't care what happens to anyone. And there's a real callousness to the film. Mm. Uh, and more than anything, it's just dull. That's another do not see <laughs> tomorrow, Drew. Yeah, don't need to see. <laughs> but, but look, I'm going to come back to something I, I I like, and hopefully you guys have, have seen this. Mm. Uh, Rabbit hole. The Amazing Rabbit Hole, I really... No, no this is no. becoming the Lee Zachariah show pretty fast. <laughs> in that case, I'll just rush through it. Ra- yeah. Rabbit Hole, no, I really want to see this Fantastic drama. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's really, really solid. And uh, I'm, I've, look, I've always liked Nicole Kidman, um, but this is the best she's been in years. Is her face moving again? No. Really? But no, no, no. But that's what... Look, she's, she's really, really good, but she's playing a character who is really, really cold and has trouble expressing the emotions that are inside of her. Perfect. And it, yeah, her mm. face works The film that. she was remodelled to play. <laughs> <laughs> See, I have this theory, because it seemed to happen in the re- around the time of the Stepford Wives. I think she actually became a Stepford Wife. Yeah, method acting. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Uh, but, but she contrasts really well with uh, Aaron Eckhart, who's very down-to-earth and his, mm. you know... The two characters play off each other really well. And, yeah, John Cameron Mitchell, God, he can direct a film. Okay, he's you sold me there. I didn't know he directed it, but he's fantastic. So. Oh, you didn't know he made mm, it? No, there you oh, go. Okay. There oh, you go. Wow. Making a beeline to the cinema then. Moving on now to Sanctum, uh, which I believe, Josh, you have seen. I have seen Sanctum. Should I see Sanctum? Uh, look, <laughs> this is one of those difficult films where the visuals are quite striking, and yet the dialogue is so utterly appalling that... You could question whether it is indeed worth sitting through just for those brief moments where there's this sort of the incredible visuals or the or the sort of the the tension when no one's actually speaking and then as soon as someone opens their mouth and these horrid dialogue comes out, it's, it's I mean it is laugh out loud bad but not even in the intentional. Or is it Australian? Look, I think it's going to be loosely categorised as an Australian film because it's the Australian director mm. Richard Roxburgh. And I think the are they speaking in Australian accents? The cast? Well, well, one of this is one of the frustrating things. It's, so basically, for those who haven't seen it, it's uh, you know it, it's centers around a, um, a caving expedition. It's sort of a father-son narrative. The cave gets blocked off, and they have to sort of navigate these these caves in Papua New Guinea to, in order to escape. Mm. And Richard Roxburgh plays the leader of this expedition, and he's sort of his son, who's sort of like a you know a, a thrill seeker adventure, you know what have you. 
is this sort of the you know daddy left me and and, and me and my mum for the cave this is his real life and I you know I'm not happy with dad and everything he does has not been about me and but the dialogue is so horrendous that yeah. as soon as and it's so kind of obvious and there's no real sense of ex you know um, tension or, or build up or dread which you should have in this sort of claustrophobic environment. And you know, I think the the fact that there's James Cameron is listed as an executive producer when, as far as I know, all he did was provide the 3D cameras, <laughs> and so sort of said, you know, you can chuck my name on it. I don't know why he would would let them you know, if he hadn't read the script. But oh well, I think it was his his idea, uh, or I don't know if he's credited as such. But I know he's been wanting to make a film about divers for years. It was it was one of the potential projects going up against Avatar, and I think he's this is his kind of thing. He's just sort of handed it off to someone else and go, well, I'll produce it and I'll give you the cameras and the, I'll get the money and you guys do it. As far as I know, the director is a diver as well, and it, mm. it was loosely based on an experience What's he had while caving. The guy that made Kokoda, Alistair Grierson. Uh, Alistair Grierson, yeah. Right, right. Director, yeah. Right. But it is, it's just it, this horrendous dialogue, and you kind of wonder if they had any sort of script editor. Or, yeah. the, other, the other frustration you mentioned before about the Australian dialogue is they, they kick off with this quite obvious let's insert Australian vernacular here so it's like oh no. you know it's as <laughs> dry as a dead dingo's dong oh no. kind of you know flush it down the dunny stone the bloody crows yeah, mate she, she's oh, stuffed shit. mate oh, that kind of and, and it's almost <laughs> what's the problem with that I talk like that all the time <laughs> it's so well it could have worked because I, I have no problem with Australian <laughs> vernacular but yeah. it's so forced and so unnatural mm. that it just comes off we're clearly appealing to an American audience and this is how we're going to sell the film and I think it's you know it's kind of insulting the yeah. audience on another level <laughs> well, I'll rush out to see that I have heard though it's one of the films in which the 3D's used really well well because these the, obviously the cameras that they used um, are so am- amazing like the underwater f- photography is quite stunning mm. now what about conviction <laughs> look it's fine it's a it's a big tell. It's a telly movie with an extremely good cast. Mm. Dramatically, it's fairly like it's one of those films. It's like it, they get any something that's in quite an incredible true story. A girl's sister, uh, brother gets uh, locked up for murder, and um, she goes to law school because because originally they try and hire lawyers and and try and get him off, and it's clear he's been set up by the police and all this sort of business, and and so she ends up going to law school to study to become a lawyer to get him out. And it takes a long time, and she eventually does. But that's the the crux of the true life story. But they get that, and then they kind of flatten it out. They take all the shades of grey out of it. It's really black and white. She's a saint. You know, he has his bad moments, like enough to keep the audience kind of guessing. Ooh, is he, did he really do it? Yeah. But it's even to the point, like they insert these really stupid lines, like, "Why don't you want to go, you know, on the lie detector test? Because I'll say I killed her just out of frustration. You know, it's like I, I know I say those kind of things and I get crazy. You know what I mean? Like, say, <laughs> say like I could kill for a steak right now. You know? Yeah, yeah. Look, as far as that kind of melodrama goes, mm. it does a reasonably good job. Like there's a couple of moments that emotionally work, and the relationship between uh, Swank and Rockwell is quite, you know. It's quite touchingly sort of put together, and but overall, it's just really it's it's like yeah, it's law and order. Like there's nothing of this we've really not seen before. Mm. It's very kind of bland, and yeah, and again, it, it's very sort of these people are good, these people are bad. That's I don't like to be confused in a film. That's the kind of signposting <laughs> I like. So I might check that out. Uh, and Josh, did you see Certified Copy? No, I haven't. The Abbas Kurastami film. Mm. Well, um, Paul. Would you like to tell... Because we've both seen it. Yes, and we're we are at the same screening. Yes. Would you like to tell me your thoughts on the film? Certified copy. Mm. Yeah, I, 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 I... Like, it starts off with a 
beautiful static shot of a table and a microphone and the man comes out and makes a speech about his new book and everything's going well and then between like I think it's about three to five minutes before I realize god these people really really annoy me and then we're stuck in a car with them for a 20 minute chat in which they bicker about everything and by that point, I want to put a bomb in the car and kill them. Hasn't Kiristami done that before? A whole film in a car sort of thing? Yeah, he enjoys that kind of thing. He's done it a few times, um, so I've heard. I've not seen a Kiristami film before. Basically, yeah, it's a, a novelist, and I guess uh, she runs like a store that sells artifacts. Yeah, antiques. Antiques, and yeah. yeah. And they spend a day together, and at, originally it seems like he's trying to pick her up, or, you know, they're, they're sort of, and she's sort of willing to show him around. There's sort of some romantic interest there, but then they seem to get on each other's nerves all the time mm. and the nature of their relationship is not as uh, ambiguous um, to a point when it's actually revealed what the nature of their relationship is I just felt I felt this as artificial and soulless as any Hollywood movie in terms of m- manipulation like it just seemed like like this 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 thing that's revealed halfway through I mean they're playing a game of sorts yeah but the thing that's revealed halfway through it's like there's characters that don't seem to know about it in the first half who aren't the two leads. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know where you're going with it. It's you know, very it's hard to talk about a twist without... Well, it's not yeah, really a twist. Yeah, it's not really a twist, but... A yeah, moment without but spoiling basically, it. But basically, yeah, she's yeah. talking to her son, and her son seems to have no knowledge of this, even though, you know... Yeah, 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 no, I know what and, you're saying. And yeah. it's like, what? How does he... What, unless he's on, in on the game, too? It's like, it's just kind of ridiculous. And, you know, I mean, it's beautiful to look at, and, you know, there's nothing wrong with spending an hour and a half in Tuscany. Um, but, you know... I just felt a film with these two incredibly annoying characters seemingly going, not really acting like any human beings I want to spend any time with, and then just sort of kind of moving in the way the plot wants them to move very clunkily, and then, you know, ends the film with a guy taking a piss. It's kind of, <laughs> it was, you know, the ultimate statement for me. Yeah, I didn't like this film at all. I mean, Binoche is gorgeous, but... Mm. That. And a lot of people had a problem with the male lead, William Schimmel, who's actually an opera singer. Yeah, yeah. Um, he doesn't have much acting. I didn't really have a problem with him. I, yeah. like, I thought the acting was fine, but mm. the characters I was playing were detestable and pretentious tosses. So, Lee, what did you think of Certified Copy? Well, being someone who loves detestable, pretentious uh, tosses uh, <laughs> as a general rule. No, I know, <laughs> I know we're only two months into 2011, but this is uh, Head and Shoulders, my favourite film of the year so far. Uh, I love wow. every element of it, every second, every shot, every moment, just... It, it just it just hit me in all the right ways. It's like, and I can't believe they didn't put this on the poster. It's like uh, before sunset, as directed by Russian arcs Alexander Sokorov. And I think if you want to, that could explain why I hated it because I couldn't <laughs> stand Russian arcs. Okay, that's one of, that's one of my favourites of all. <laughs> I loved the characters, even though really, yeah. Well, I found them likable, even though this is what I was talking about before with the sort of even though they're annoying, even though they're they're doing things that you that get on your nerves i still like them i liked spending time with both of them wow. uh i think it is one of the most gorgeous films i've seen in a long time the locations are just astonishing and the locations are gorgeous i'll yeah. give it that yeah and uh and i <laughs> i'll concede the locations <laughs> <laughs> it was shot in a place and i don't disagree with this point but uh no look i i can't really disagree like i understand why why you don't like it, I understand why people have had such a huge problem with it. I can mm. see that film in there. But for me, it hit me on such a gut level that it's really hard for me to argue the reasons why. Wow. The one thing I, I will argue, and I didn't actually realise this until you were talking about it just then, is I think we fundamentally disagree with that moment that comes, is it halfway through? Mm. 
with that what that is because I think there are two, at least two interpretations of what's happening there, mm. uh, or, or three three clear ones that I can think of, and they never really tip their hand as to or Kiristami never tips his hand as to which it is, and it's all left to the audience. Right. And that and that was that really knocked me back in my seat when that happened, because I could see three very clear different explanations, and there was never any clue given to me as to which it was, and so my mind was jumping between them, and and uh, I I didn't arrive at a conclusion in the end. Mm. I was left right. hanging, which is sort of what the film I think is trying to do. Look, I need it to watch it again. To it does feed into like it, it does feed into the theme of what his book's about. Mm. Yes, exactly. Lee, do you think this is a difficult Kiristami film to start with? Because I, like Paul, I haven't seen any mm. other Kiristami films. Well, this is—it's hard for me to say as well because this is the Kiristami film I started oh, with, right. and everyone keeps telling me it's nothing like his other work. Right. Okay. So uh, I'd love—I'm uh, going to seek out everything the man's made now after seeing this film because it's. Yeah. I'd be interested to see something else. Yeah, yeah. Particularly if people are saying this is nothing like the others. Like, oh, good. <laughs> see the others. <laughs> so yeah, look, I think I think if there's one thing we can all agree on uh, after all that, it's it's go see the final installment of the Big Mummers trilogy. Indeed. Is that... that Big Mummers House 3, Return yeah. of the... Like King, like Son. <laughs> I'm telling you, 11 Oscars next year. Now, Dr. Nelson, who have you picked for your Take It, Paul? Hell is for Hyphenates, Filmmaker of the Month. I feel like I should come in with a WWE-style kind of <laughs> announcement here. Of but just an uh, evil laugh, because you are Dr. Nelson. <laughs> uh, the Dave Deprave, the Baron of Blood, the King of Venereal Horror, David Cronenberg! <laughs> to have that many nicknames, it would seem like he a waste does. not to quote them, yeah. He so needs a WWE intro. I don't think we've had that many monikers coming before a name <laughs> since John Waters. <laughs> you Pope of Trash. Yeah. <laughs> Now, why have you picked him? A little bit of a story. I think Cronenberg was my second great love of the cinema. Um, if you want to think about directors you fall in love with, uh, you know, across your sort of the cinema journey, that sounds a bit wanky, doesn't it? Uh, you know, Scorsese was my first, the okay. first great love, and I, would have been great if it was Ron Howard or something. <laughs> That'd be. A sh- I'd have. I'd make. I'd say it's Scorsese anyway if it was Ron Howard. <laughs> If you could say I lost my virginity to Scorsese, but Cronenberg's the long relationship that keeps on going. <laughs> nice. Um, and I, you know, as a kid, I, I'd kind of grown up watching a number of the horror films from the 70s and 80s. It was quite strange. I'd seen a lot of these films which were rated way beyond my age, mm. but I guess that's the benefit of having a, a split custody parents who are vying for your affection and will <laughs> curtail to your desires in terms of videos. Um, but it, it was more once I got to university... Cronenberg, uh, that sort of later Cronenberg films opened up, and I was lucky enough to have a, a lecturer who was really interested in his work mm. and, and taught a number of his um, his, his films. And I think actually one of the the, the appeal for Cronenberg for me, um, and this continues to the films now, is that he has that rare or that unique appeal between the sort of the visceral pleasures of genre cinema and the kind of intellectual pleasures mm. of, of art house cinema. And Absolutely, uh, you know, he he rides that sort of delicate balance between those two. You know, often sort of separate um, canons, I think. Fairly evenly, too. Like, yeah, they're, they're, they're both are as equally into his work. He definitely does take... He, he seems to have a scientist's mind. And his films often seem to be like... He, even to the later ones, they seem to be kind of anthropomorphic studies. You know, he's 
watching the way humans work, hmm. which I find really interesting. Incredibly, uh, as we start with his first two films, Stereo and Crimes of the Future, which he made in Canada for about... And he's always been staunchly Canadian. He's yep. a Canadian mm. filmmaker, has always made his films in Canada, bar about two, I think. I think you're right, yeah. Yeah, Ser- uh, Stereo and Crimes of the Future, both about an hour long, um, both made for minuscule budgets, and they're kind of inspiring on that level. Incredibly dry films seem like they're made from a completely scientific point of view. What did you guys think of them? Well, uh, I was just going to mention that I think that it's, in- it's interesting, those two films, almost from a novelty perspective, looking back in, in hindsight, because he, he went into the University of Toronto with the science initially for the science, and after a year then switched to literature and, and English studies, mm. which is kind of funny because they're really the two competing, I guess, or, or, or two of the competing themes in his film where we have this aspect of science, but also literary and the number of adaptations that he's done. So mm. they're kind of both aspects of his work. But you're right, they are dry. Um, Stereo is, is quite a challenging film. It's silent except for a, a voiceover commentary, and the voiceover is really almost sort of dry science, almost like a science journal yes. or, or, or a psychiatric mm. sort of journal voiceover description about this it's research like someone talking to a dictaphone, isn't it? It is, absolutely. Yeah. And it's it like Subject 19 has shown. Yeah, yeah. I actually thought my DVD player was screwing up <laughs> and I kept pressing <laughs> buttons to try and... Uh, yeah, sorry, go on. I was just going to say that the interesting thing with stereo uh, is, is the way you can clearly see it's a precursor to things like scanners. Yes. Mm. Where, th- you know, this is a scientific experiment at this sort of pseudo-university research laboratory of these telepaths and, and their interrelationship mm. and this sort of the eroticism that emerges. So there's all these different kind of key aspects that are emerging mm. in this sort of stage. They felt like, uh, to me, they felt like extended shorts uh, mm. rather than, than small features. But they really signalled the mood and the themes he was interested yeah. in and they're yeah they're like the great prologues to his career but because they feel like extended shorts it really feels like his first film is shivers yeah i mean god i mean stereos and crime of the future stereo and crimes of the future feel like they go on forever for an hour mm. it's like even cronenberg himself admits it'd be a tough double feature um, I, I watched him in a double feature yeah. I, loved, I can't tell them apart but uh, I loved yeah them. And, and Crimes of the Future has, as you say, uh, Stereo has the telepathic theme and the eroticism from that. Crimes of the Future has the body horror, which is... Mm. And the sexual perversions and... And the, the cross-dressing. And this, this, uh, it's mm. quite a unique concept, this notion that there's been a disease that's wiped out all the females or most of the females off the planet. And the men... Caused by cosmetics. Yeah, and the, and the men have begun to display these pseudo-feminine characteristics like the, the signs of the disease are like lactating from the breasts or the, mm. the bleeding and it's called Rouge's Malady which sounds like a you know a euphemism for menstruation really mm. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of a fascinating really you know and you have these men who are these random sequences and these long still takes of like a man dancing like a ballerina and mm. another man you know rigorously applying kind of cosmetics or mm. some uh, another man who's sort of giving birth to organs off his mm. off his sort of body which mm. again is Know, I guess a precursor to the brood mm. in, in some ways. So they're fascinating from a, a, a point of a director who's clearly obsessed with certain themes but doesn't have, the, I guess, the, the formal sophistication to then, you know, or, or, or to apply it in a generic context that's more palatable, I think. A- absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, as you're right, Shivers does seem like the debut. It feels like a first film. It feels mm. like this is, this is who I am, this is what I'm about, not just because there's a speech about everything is erotic. That, that that speech just not just sums up that film, it sums up his career. Mm. But the thing that really, uh, there are a couple of things that really astonished me about the film. Uh, one was that it seems to be anti-promiscuity. And it's, it's, it's almost like there's a conservative message underneath, which just 
I, I, it confuses me because that doesn't seem in line with what Cronenberg is interested in. But the, the thing that really astonished me is that it seems to be a film about AIDS made six years before <laughs> AIDS was discovered. Mm. And that, that blew my mind when I looked up those dates just to see if they yeah. correlated. Wow. It's like the network of AIDS. You know, like yeah. what network is to television? <laughs> Shivers is dead. The argument about sexual conservatism is an interesting one. I think this is a, an argument that's been promoted by a film theorist, film critic uh, Robin Wood, who's kind of like the monkey on Cronenberg's back. He's the one who's been who, who suggested that all of his films are rep- reprehensible, negative, abhorrent, except for the Dead Zone, which he says is a you know anachronism in, in Cronenberg's filmography. I think I think it's a misreading. I, I'm tempted to play you know the defendant of Cronenberg here. Mm-hmm. Um, I think he's he's toying with sexuality and he's 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 trying to consider the, the I guess the ramifications of sexuality or this this notion of how would a sexuality evolve in contemporary society, and I think he sort of suggests that you know logically you know a sexuality that's that's new would be confronting and challenging and and horrific for mm-hmm. sort of the the you know repressed social norm. So I, he says it's kind of you know uh, logical that it would appear horrific, but I don't think. You know, and Cronenberg says he we're meant to identify them with them more once they've become yes. these sexual beings. And I think that's the point at which right. the, that yeah. the film sort of makes sense because you've got this middle class set up, you've got this high-rise building. Mm. It's actually funny... In, and in it's a shot at an idealised utopian society too. You know, yeah. it's, this, well, it's this island where everything is there for you and everything's perfect and everything's sanitised. It's yeah. pure Ballard. I mean, yeah. the fact that the yeah. film was made a year after Ballard wrote High Rise, which mm. is really a parable on, on the middle class and, and you know, the, sort of the burgeoning... A self-contained apartment living that you have these characters who are very sterile and, and isolated from each other despite the fact that they're living in close quarters mm. and then it's only once that this they contract this sort of venereal parasite that a community kind of develops <laughs> which is kind of a strange idea yeah. so rather than this zombie community it's like these very passionate these sort of yeah. social taboos of trying to involve everyone else yeah yeah that's that's brilliant yes <laughs> yes i see i see exactly you've totally changed my reading of that film and and bringing it down to the gutter, I mean, for me, it totally works as like a, a 70s drive-in exploitation movie too. There's some <laughs> great horror in there. It's so much fun. That's the thing yeah. that separates suddenly, you know, the dry, you know, sort of scientific exploration. Suddenly he's got a bit of, let's just make a cool horror film with all these ideas I'm interested he's in. He's been very clever, and, yeah. Yeah, and it's a great... Pa- I think Shivers is a terrific pathway to his work because it does have that pr- uh, prurient, you know, sort of... Um, sex and violence kind of approach, but there's some huge ideas behind it. Now, uh, two years later, you made Rabid, which I haven't seen. Mm. Uh, what's what's that like? It's, it's Again, it's a, sort of a similar idea. Um, the setup, it's sort of typically a sci-fi horror genre concept, I think. A woman gets injured in a motorcycle accident at the start of the film, is taken to a nearby clinic, and it turns out this clinic is a kind of a, a wealthy middle-class clinic for people who are wanting cosmetic surgery. And, and she has, she's performed, in order to save her life, there's this uh, radical experimental skin graft surgery, which results in her having this phallic-like stinger, which emerges from underneath her armpit. It's, <laughs> it's probably the one, it's the, the one moment of illogic in the film, because it never makes sense where her burns are from this accident, and why this thing's been inserted in her in armpit, armpit of all yeah. places. But that's, I guess, the, the concept of the film. budgetary, just to hide it most of the time. Yeah, most <laughs> of the time it's under her arm, so we don't see it. Yeah, I'd, Rabbit doesn't work nearly as well as um, as uh, Shivers. One of the reasons why is because I think Marilyn Chambers isn't quite up to it. I mean, well, I think she does a pretty good job, do? actually. I mean, a pretty good job for her experience, but I don't know. She just doesn't seem to kind of hit the mark on 
Well, Cronenberg wanted Sissy Spacek, mm, and, who would and, have been excellent. Uh, and Ivan yeah. Reitman, the producer, was clearly thinking in the, mo- the the mold of we need to make this appeal to the yeah. masses, and thought let's get a porn actress in because that you know isn't the drive-in <laughs> point of view exactly. Um, yeah, and there's just some things like it just seems a bit clunkier than um, uh, than than Shivers, although it does have some horrifying images. It has that great scene where they're throwing people in the back of the garbage truck. It's very Romero. Yeah, sort of it dead. does have a sense of apocalypse about it, and that is successful. Yeah, this woman, and I guess it has that it foregrounds that the female as this sexual object, and, and sexuality and eroticism again is the the cause of this, you know, outbreak of disease. So she becomes like this sort of typhoid Mary character yep. who, you know, stings people through this phallic object, and that which sucks their blood as well. So she's sort of this kind of cross-gendered body where she has this sort of penis in her armpit, she's sucking blood, mm. she's infecting people. It's it's this bizarre, I guess, combination of, of body horror. Yeah. yeah. And again, that sort of shivers theme, that irrepressible sexuality as well, you know, having to, you know, sort of, su- you know, s- rapidly seduce people and bring them home to feed the beast, you know. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I just, yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's, it's a little less polished or together you know that's fair enough then we come to a film which i think the tagline to it should have been uh what (laughs) it's fast company which felt to me less like a david cronenberg film than it did uh stallone's over the top the arm wrestling trucking movie (laughs) it's cronenberg's cannibal run i think it's it again though i think it's another drive-in movie it's another it's it but it's cronenberg's good old boy movie very popular in the 70s from Smokey and the Bandit and all those sort of Burt Reynolds flicks like Gator and White Lightning and stuff. Cronenberg made it because he's a huge car freak. Right. He's a massive car guy and he just and they offered him a film where it's like you could just get to work with drag cars and film drag car races he's like hell I'll do that. And that's and that's why he did it. And it's really polished. It's it's a really you know for a driving flick it's a really slick looking film. The most interesting thing for me about Fast Company is shots of the car, the way he treats the interiors of the car, the mechanics, the kind of nuts and bolts, like a body. God, you keep changing my reads on films because <laughs> I had this big thing about how there was nothing in Fast Company that reflected Cronenberg's work, but his whole thing about mechanics and the body being the yeah. same thing. Yeah, you're absolutely right. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly what well, he does. Well, that's probably why he's into cars. Yeah. It's the same logic. And he seems to be, again, it's this anthropomorphic anthropomorphic study of how things work you know. well I liked his uh, I, I really really liked The Brood which was a film that came out the yeah. same year that he made and this feels to me like and maybe millions of people have said this before but his Hitchcock homage because I saw there's a lot of Psycho in there there's a lot of the birds in there particularly right. towards the end and Spellbound and it really I kept seeing I, this almost feels like his homage to Hitchcock it was his De Palma film yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> I never thought of it that way I th- yeah, yeah, I think you're right, actually. It's funny, um, when I was going back over Brood, someone on IMDb, uh, maybe this hasn't been picked up yet, said in, in Cronenberg's bio that it's an autobiographical film. <laughs> <laughs> I think they may need to qualify that. I don't think his wife at the time was sprouting these you know, mutated birth sacs which gave birth to kind of these children, <laughs> but he was actually going through a divorce at the time he made yes. it. So it's so it's good. a kick-ass <laughs> film, it's so, and it's so <laughs> Although, Although, may I make a recommendation, if you're going to watch a film about creepy children climbing up walls, don't do it if you live in a house where possums <laughs> climb over the roof as you're trying to watch it. Oh, that was freaky. <laughs> I just love, there's a moment towards the end... The, the great reveal where he f- where, the, where the husband finally confronts the wife and, and starts to realise what's been happening and she lifts up her, her oh, top no. to reveal that this birth sack and this reaction on his face and <laughs> 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 like, yeah you disgust me <laughs> jeez what is that <laughs> it's 
said thing on your chest. It did feel a little misogynistic at times to me. I've got to say. But that's that's the anger from the divorce. That's what that is. That's just, yeah, I think he was pissed at his wife at the time and that comes through loud Quite and clear a fascinating ending too. I mean, we probably talk about his endings later, but mm. th- with the, the shot of the daughter and this, this sense that this sort of genetic anger or this, this relationship between the mind and, and the mm. body is being now going to be transferred to their younger yeah. daughter. Well, that's, yeah, that, that's definitely a theme that he'll come back to. But um, so if that was uh, him recovering from the divorce, was Scanners, was he pissed at his psychic? I, I don't, <laughs> I'm just grasping the straws here. But. but it's all because of the money shot. Well, that's a the great ex- shot. The, the most exploding, one head. of the most incredible special effects in sort of it is, it is amazing history. It seems to have about four times as much plasma that's actually in your <laughs> head coming out. It's a little a bit of a geyser, but it's a film I really wanted to love. It has a great concept. It has Michael Ironside, who I adore, and he's great in he it. Is he is. Great he's in he's it, fantastic yeah. with the great name of Daryl Revok. His yeah. um, characters often have really cool names, but it also has the aptly named Stephen Lack who gives one of the worst lead performances in a feature film I've ever seen. He's the weak link. I, I can't dispute that. Like, i, I got to give him some credit because uh, your performance always looks worse if there's bad ADR, but even taking that into account, even... It's the looks. Oh, it's my God. Yeah. It's almost as if conceptually he was, it's, it was reaching too far because you've got, you've got the medical science, you've got that associated with corporations, mm. corporations associated with defence force spending, and then you've got this sort of subplot involving telepaths and, and, and GPs in which these mm. telepaths, we, we find it this sort of almost like this race of telepaths have been bred through pregnant women being given this drug. So there's yeah, sort of too like, many levels. Like you said, conceptually, it's a much more enjoyable film than the, what the yeah. execution yeah. is. Absolutely. I, I think if he'd gotten Walken to be the guy, I just thought oh, of that. Oh, yeah. yeah. If you got walking to be the lead psychic versus Ironside, you can read your mind. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I know what you're thinking. Don't turning won't help. I, I just <laughs> well, um, for my, have to for my money, I don't know what my favourite of his films are, but for my money, his masterpiece is probably Videodrome. His yeah, next film. If you talk about. Uh, Cronenberg's obsession with sex and violence and technology all being the same thing. And body horror. And body horror. But they're all the same thing. And this is almost the perfect culmination of that thing. Mm. But the the anti-violence message, again, he seems, or my reading of it, is almost against himself, against his own interests, where it seems to be an anti-violence message from a guy who loves using violence in his films. Mm. Like, you will be, you know, this will destroy society, having too many violent films, too many violent TV shows. And basically, Videodrome, I think, is part, in part in a response to that argument, where he takes the notion that violent TV causes violent people and pushes it to its supposed logical you know, e- extension, mm. which is this world where everyone is kind of captivated with you know, tumours and hallucinations and so on. So I think it's almost a parody of that argument, so, like you said, Lee, I think it's it's quite easy to understand it as does he seems to be arguing against himself, but you know, I, I think the context of this is a, a parody or is actually critiquing the idea while exploring the the themes that the are nightmare issues scenario at, at the yeah. same time. Mm. I think you're both right. I think Videodrome is an exceptional film, which mm. you know, on so many levels, the body horror, mm. the the way in it's so original. Mm. It is one of those films that's just so uniquely original. It could only be made by one man. Yeah. yeah. And there's no precedent. It's like, what is this? Mm. I think philosophically, f- from an academic perspective, one of the fascinating things I find about Videodrome is the way in which he reverses the, the mind-body Cartesian duality. That traditionally, you have the, the, the mind is, is 
primal or, or is, prime, is, is central and then the body responds to the mind. Mm. But in Videodrome, he does an interesting thing where he suggests that the hallucinations are the product of the body, that a, a tumour mm. is created in, in, the, in the body mm. and that's what creates the hallucinations, Allah changes the shift of perception in the mind as opposed to the other way around. So it's not the TV or, or the mind affects, creates the tumour. It's the reverse. Well, yeah, I mean, he's certainly somebody who seems to think that everything affects everything else, which is why there's no difference in his head between sex, violence, uh, you know, technology, you know, anything yeah. you experience in your life, it's all the same. Mm. And it keeps coming back to that body. I mean, he, he talks about the body as the central fact of human existence and that, mm. you know, you can't just overlook the body. The body often gets left out in arguments about identity, but for him, yeah. that is the, the central fact. It, start, it starts and begins, or it begins and ends with the body. And when he talks about evolution and all these, these characters in his films about evolving, mm. it's always a physical evolution before it's a, mm. a, a mental or a rational one. And we know from diseases mm. and whatnot, like it's often a mental effect uh, manifesting itself as a physical symptom mm. so yeah I mean what are we if not our bodies you know, it's it, it's a compelling point and and he's the absolute master of making it and it feels so it feels transgressive on a level too you know it feels really yeah it, it's one of those I think it's an adjective that's thrown around far too much of being dangerous but I think there is a dangerous element to it because the danger comes in the ideas mm. not you know the, I guess the base grossness mm. of what's happening yes I think one of my favourite lines, and I think Videodrome is important for another reason, and that's because it's the first film, I think, that Cronenberg starts talking about his responsibility as a filmmaker in, in the mm. film. So it's, it's, it's one of the first films where he's talking about the art of cinema or the context of cinema. In, in, so it's sort of a self-reflexive gesture. Mm. And if you remember, there's a conversation in a cafe that uh, Max Wren, the James Woods character, has with another woman he's trying to get uh, information on. And she says, Videodrome, it's dangerous because it has a philosophy. Mm. And that's what makes it dangerous. It has yes. something you don't have. And this is this argument that was put against Cronenberg's films as being dangerous from more mainstream horror mm. is because they seem to be dealing with something else that you know people couldn't grasp. It. There seemed to be something philosophical going on, which is, and that's what made him dangerous. So he starts to talk about his own position yeah. as a filmmaker in the context of his themes, which I think is really fascinating. Wow, we could seriously do an hour on this film <laughs> okay. alone. Really it's good. That, yeah. It's that good. But um, after that, what felt like a work for hire to me watching it was um, his adaptation of Stephen King's The Dead Zone. And as far as work for hires go, I thought it was a really, really good... Yeah. Right, it still felt a bit too episodic, but I thought it was really solid. It was great seeing him work with Christopher Walken as a lead man. And Martin Sheen as like an oh, evil yeah. presidential candidate oh, as yeah. well. That's which casting against... It's kind of using... Because he played Kennedy... In t on television in yeah. the 70s and kind of use that kind of presidential feel that then we come back to with the West Wing in the dark sense. It's like Paul Thomas Anderson with Tom Cruise in Magnolia getting that image and standing it on its head. Yeah. That's what Cronenberg does with Sheen here. It's really clever casting. Well, it's mm. funny that you know, the, the subplot is a, a psychic too. That you know, It's almost like Cronenberg's playing the, the filmic psychic preempting Sheen's emergence <laughs> to a president <laughs> later. Yes. <laughs> exactly. It's a polished adaptation but I, yeah, mm. I think in the, in the context of, of his other work it's... it's it's not dangerous or it's not really no. you know, overly philosophical or challenging. But it, in terms of the Stephen King adaptations that we've seen, it's one of the better ones. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's top one five two for me. Or three yeah. Best, yeah. Uh, in 86, he did uh, The Fly, which is... It's, it's, to me, it's the perfect B-movie. It is absolute, It is the perfect type of schlocky horror because it's almost an A-movie in disguise. It's really, it really is. clever. It's so tight. It works on every conceivable level. And it's technically as polished as anything you'll ever see like mm. the makeup is still astonishing 
the um the the crawling on the walls effect that they, they had the moving set yeah yeah um, you could tell from what yeah so amazingly done yeah. um but Goldblum's performance is what I think both the of their thing. performances yeah, yeah. the yeah. fact that they were probably in a relationship there's mm, there's, a, there's the an time. honesty in their performances that I don't think I've seen in, in as much as I like them both in their performances since particularly mm. that last scene just tears me apart yeah. even just thinking about it is just you know yeah. getting sort of choked up but it's, it's there's a real beauty to it and I think maybe that's what you know, stands Cronenberg apart from some other filmmakers mm. when he's doing genre is there's a level of pathos that he brings yes. mm. like to Christopher Walken in The Dead Zone and to both the kind of the Seth Brundle character and, and the partner in, in The Fly. Well, whenever anyone tries to make a monster movie uh, or whenever they fail, it's usually because they've forgotten the golden rule of Frankenstein, which is you have to have sympathy for the monster. Absolutely. And you have so much sympathy yeah. in The Fly. Just his eyes in that film are yeah. so compelling. It's mm. one of those performances he ocularly sucks you in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, it is. If you take away the monster element, mm. it's basically a relationship drama about a man who's developed a disease and his partner can't deal with it because mm. you know it, he talks about you know I finally understood what the disease wants it wants to you know absorb me it wants to kind of mutate me it mm. wants to make me something else so it's almost like he has cancer or yeah. he has AIDS yeah, yeah, or yeah. you know it's this incredible sort of parable of course yeah yeah it's it's incredibly compelling also I've bought over probably close to a thousand films in my lifetime The Fly was the first nice that's a good claim to really? film VHS <laughs> when I was 11 it was R rated I don't know how that happened <laughs> <laughs> I know how it happened. <laughs> well, yeah, after that, I mean, he was on a hell of a streak during this period because his next film was Dead Ringers. Well, I, d- I don't want to put too fine a point on this. Jeremy Irons is fucking ex- extraordinary in yeah. this film. The he fact that you can tell which twin he's playing without any yes. visual clue it's other than his so performance. so subtle. The vir- it's yeah. a virtual... Cronenberg apparently approached over 30 Hollywood actors and no one wanted to touch it. And Irons was the first one... It was the first non-American actor he approached, and he said, "I'm interested." Wow. And then it was a, another year of struggle to try and get the the funding. Wow! Up. But he's 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 absolutely remarkable. Yeah. yeah. The it only the only, uh, the saddest part of the film is when Mark Zuckerberg tries to steal uh, Facebook from them. <laughs> it was just I wa- I hadn't had a lot of sleep when I watched it, but I'm pretty sure that's what happened. <laughs> Beverly Winklevoss. Yeah. <laughs> there's a kind of, there's a sort of, I, I think, actually, Dead Ringers, we, we mentioned the misogyny uh, before. Mm. I think Dead Ringers is the perfect evidence to prove that Cronenberg is not a misogynist director mm. when you have the, the female character played by um, Genevieve Bajol, yeah, yeah. who, who really is the source of empathy in the film at the end. She's the kind of the, the battered woman mm. in between these two crazed gynecologist mm, mm. and she's the one you have as much sympathy for as the, as the two men kind of falling into their own sort of personal hell I certainly don't think Cronenberg uh, is misogynistic I think he's fascinated by misogynistic characters definitely yeah. which is why they, it's such a recurring theme I think he's just fascinated by sexual politics in general mm. and um, the fact that you know these instruments these incredibly beautiful instruments that one of the characters designs which then become transformed into a uh, a work of art yeah. called yes. the, the gynecological instruments for operating on mutant, mutant women. women. Yes. <laughs> so again, we have Cronenberg talking about art within the context of the film. The mm. fact that you can have this, I guess, this object that's made for science, which becomes a, a piece of art in mm. itself, mm. perhaps like you know his film. There is Naked Lunch is pretty much a William S. Burroughs drug trip, and it's almost like Cronenberg is the only person who could possibly have filmed that. He he made part of the novel, part of Burroughs. Autobiography, and then some references to short stories of Burroughs' other work, and fuse them into this sort of hybrid with a Cronenberg aesthetic, which then becomes Naked Lunch, a film about a guy writing Naked Lunch, and and Peter Weller, I think, is 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 made to play that role. He is just so perfect, and 
Ornette Coleman's score, we haven't even talked about Howard Shaw, but mm. the, the score in, in Naked Lunch, this sort of, you know, freestyle jazz is this sort of, you know, it's perfect. It's for very off the beat generation. As the music. Yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Well, you have, again, the, the things of sexuality of, of the, the body of mm. these objects of technology, like the typewriter, which becomes... It starts talking at him through its it anus, geni- it? genitals. And yeah, yeah, yeah. Everything's the same. It's all the same. Technology and every body part. It's all a one thing to him. Mm. Now, I haven't seen M. Butterfly... So what's uh, what's your take on that? Look, M Butterflies are what I actually should have mentioned before with Dead Ringers. One of the turning points with his filmography is he switches cinematographers from Mark Irwin um, to Peter Sushitsky. And Mark Irwin will probably live to regret this for the rest of his life. But when Dead Ringers came up, he said, "Sorry, David, I'm working on the Blob remake." Wow. And has never worked with him since. So Sushitsky mm. has this incredible kind of aesthetic, and I think Cronenberg's films have changed with that aesthetic. And M Butterfly is a kind of a a classy film. It's not a traditional genre film. Mm. It's based on a play yep. um, uh, by David Huang, which is pseudo-based on the, the Madame Butterfly yep. story. The opera. But, but with a cross-gender twist. Yeah. Where we have a, a French diplomat played by Jeremy Irons who falls in love with what he thinks or you know, convinces himself is a female who's actually a male opera singer. And they have this relationship which then he becomes involved in a sort of an act of treason. Um, so you have this, this interesting thing about the film in terms of not only gender and the body, but of playing out cultures and this notion of fantasy where the, the, the French character, the, the Jeremy Irons character, is obsessed with um, Sung, the opera singer, because she embodies not only this, this perfect femininity, so you have this irony that it's actually a man embodying mm. femininity, mm. but also this mystique of the Orient. And Cronenberg plays, he, he makes the audience aware that this is all this pure fantasy, mm. that this is concocted. The whole basis for the real the Madame Butterfly, this nostalgia that the submissive Eastern woman would fall for the the macho Western man kind of thing, and he he almost debunks that myth mm. in yeah. a way. And then the the end, the final scene is this wonderful, you know, almost taking the fantasy to its grotesque conclusion, where the Irons character embodies the the female opera singer in jail, and it's it's an incredible. Wow, wow. I'm gonna have to seek that out. Yeah, again though, this anthropomorphic study through gender politics. Yeah. yeah. Uh, now, I, I feel I can't comment on uh, Crash because when I saw it, I was about 17. I'd just come off this big David Lynch revelation. Lost Highway had changed my life and I went into this kind of feeling like I wanted another Lost Highway and I really, really hated Crash. Whereas now, thinking back on Crash after watching all of his films, I really, really want to revisit it and I think I'd feel very differently about I, it now. I think we were cohabitating the same body because I'm ashamed to say... I. I was the exact same. I was 17, saw the film and didn't like it. Uh, I didn't get it. I didn't quite understand what it was doing. It was, for me, it it felt slow. I I almost felt it was pretentious. Mm. Now I think it's, you know, up with Videodrome as his masterpiece. I think it's one of the most controlled, clever, cold, beautiful films. Uh, Yeah, I think it's a stunning work of cinema. I have a feeling I'll feel that way when I revisit it. I've got to say, I was pissed when it won Best Picture. I mean, how could it have beaten Brokeback Mountain? And it hits you over the head with the whole racism. Uh, Well, it's Uh, it's because of the Facebook plot line. No, sorry. (laughs) Someone had to make that joke. Yes, it is. Wrong crash. Wrong crash. I've only, in my rush to catch up, I've been so busy this week, I've only seen the first two thirds of Crash. I love what I've seen. Elias Coteus is fascinating. His entire character and performance is just... The, the whole mm. film needs to be taken on a kind of, a, I think, a metaphoric level, like 
the J.G. Ballard book on which it's mm. based. That this this notion of people who have this sort of sexual relationship to cars that uh, eroticize through car crashes is not a literal. He's not Cronenberg's not saying go and smash your car and you'll get off on yeah. it. It's it's about again the body's relationship to technology mm. and eroticization and you know this notion of sexuality is no longer tied to um, procreative purposes. Mm. Mm. Sex yeah. is now everywhere. It's invested in all these other forms, and for him, technology is one, and, and the car symbolizes. Well, and it's Cronenberg a technology and that does turn people on. Absolutely, there are, mil- are constantly billions of men around the world, sh- you know, calling their cars female pronouns. Oh and God, now I understand Fast Company. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I like. I didn't. I, I didn't think it was. It could ever be seen as being in support of that life. But it, to me, it seems like almost like a look at an extreme, possibly fictional subculture. I don't know. Maybe it is not mm. fictional. Who knows? One to go to Wikipedia with. Well, I mean, you, you get the typical response, and Cronenberg's quite, you know, open about the people who mis- misinterpret his work. Mm. And sort of, someone came up to him at Cannes when it when it premiered and said, "I broke my arm in a car crash, and there was nothing sexy about it at all." <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> well, you, you, it's not what I'm saying. These you know, people are clearly deranged. It's, it's it's metaphoric. <laughs> yeah. And the thing I I find interesting about it, and what uh, well, I keep coming back to Crash and, and rewatching it, despite the fact it is that it's quite a cold experience, is this notion of the way it plays on desire and the fact that these people are reenacting car crashes and pushing their bodies closer mm. and closer to the one that will kill them for pleasure. So if you think about the way in which desire works in society that you have to increase the limit of, of you know of stimulus or you know stimulation in order to get that excitement and that each time is for these people is pushing it closer to death and that's where the enjoyment comes from. Yeah. yeah it's a fascinating film in terms of the way it explores that idea. Absolutely. Now, what is uh, how is existence? Because I still haven't seen this one. I'm afraid to say. Compared to Crash, it's far more playful. It's back yeah. to that early genre, genre thing. It's part of that '90s, I guess. You know, it's just occurred to me. Cronenberg was once mooted as a director of Total Recall. He was. He was um, signed up and ready to go. Right. Existence is pretty much his Total Recall. It's his Philip K. Dick adaptation. Yes. He sort of says yeah. Right. It's it's somebody who starts believing they're in a game and starts you know um, mani- things start manifesting in the real world. A lot of it out of the body. Funnily enough, his hand turns into yeah. a gun, much like Videodrome. Um, I've I've been a long time since I've seen it, but it suddenly occurs to me. Yeah, it's because he would be the perfect person to do Philip K. Dick. Mm. Right. He was gutted when Technology's when relationship um, De Laurentiis end up going for after he'd done a year and a half pre-production on the, mm. the on Total Recall and went for Verhoeven and there's one scene in Total Recall that they've they've maintained from uh, his script which is the most paranoid scene in the film which the doctor comes in with the the pill and says you need to take this as a symbol to Schwarzenegger and he sees the drip of sweat and of course kills him and then the whole world mm. kind of collapses yeah, yeah. existence is, is is similar in that it draws the audience into that the audience isn't given the this is reality and this is the game it, they become indistinguishable. Mm. So it plays on, you know... Th- and it, it also comes at a time when you have in the 90s the Truman Show, Matrix, Fight mm. Club, Memento. There's this spate of films dealing with existential crises or what is real and what isn't. And it's, I think it's fascinating from that point of view. And it's such a playful film. Yeah. It's, mm. it's, yeah. It certainly doesn't have that coldness or that darkness that, okay. that Crash does. Right. Mm. Okay, so next was Spider. Uh, this is another one I haven't seen. Ray Fiennes struggling with schizophrenia or... I think that's the yeah. The, it's I haven't seen it. Based on a book by Patrick McGrath, who also wrote the screenplay, and it's the, I think this is the turning point for me in terms of Cronenberg's films because this is the point where he stops doing the screenplays as well. And for me, the films become less personal. They become someone else's story that Cronenberg applies his sensibility to. Absolutely. Um, and you have, you have, 
also a shift from the body to issues of the mind and violence. And this is really about a character, Ray Fiennes' character, who has some sort of traumatic past, which we don't discover, and it comes out through flashbacks, and he's in this sort of halfway house. And So, yeah, it plays with what's real, what's memory, you know, the effect of the mind and, and the past. Mm. But it's not. It, it isn't. It's it's a very different type of Cronenberg film, I think, to the to the earlier work we've discussed. He's sort of subverted his style now, completely. As well, far as well, one thing I I'm fascinated by is how much is this Cronenberg taking a, a self direction or a shift of direction, or how much is this the reality of the studio system where yeah. the films that he once made just can't get up anymore. So this is his sort of compromise where yeah. he takes someone else's material and tries to adapt it into his sort of vision. Well, I'm fascinated by, uh, in particular, uh, classic directors who have a a shift once they get to the 21st century. You look at guys like uh, Clint Eastwood, Woody Allen, Francis Ford Coppola, and now Cronenberg, who have the moment the new century starts, they do a complete 180 in in their style. Not not the issues they're interested in, but their styles in particular. And, yeah, 21st century Cronenberg feels so different from what came before. It's like a new phase in his career. And even if you look at... Uh, the fast-talking 80s stars of his films like James Woods and uh, Jeff Goldblum, whereas now it's all about Viggo Mortensen, who is this stoic, quiet, reserved man mm. bubbling away under the surface. Yeah, I'm I'm a little less I- I- excited. I think um, History of Violence, again, it's written by uh, someone else. Um, the, the graphic novel it's based on is, is quite a cut-and-dried graphic novel. It's quite an average graphic novel. And Cronenberg brings this very interesting sensibility to it in terms of the, the relationship between the husband and the wife and the, the sort of sexuality he brings to it. You also have the kind of the, the refusal of catharsis at the end. It's quite a, you know ambiguous ending. Um, I think Vigo is a perfect choice. They, yeah, they seem absolutely. to complement each other wonderfully. And again, Eastern Promises. Um, for me, it's, it's a polished film. It's a great drama. But I, I wasn't challenged and yeah. I, you know, I, I see. I found that with History of Violence too. History of Violence for me felt like the most, the biggest A to B to C story. It just felt like it felt like a pulp novel, and it's like, yeah, it's fine. I mean, it, it's been suggested there are Darwinian themes about there about the strongest organism will survive when pushed and all yeah. that sort of thing. And and as you say, there's the interesting dynamic between the um, the Maria Bello character playing his wife and and Vigo. But it just, yeah, it just seemed relatively theme three uh, theme free look I mean it's a cool idea you know it's a it's a fun pulp story but it's really nothing more than that I mean it's, it's terrific it's kind of, for me they, they both feel a little bit like the dead zone they're polished films yes. from source mm. material that wasn't Cronenberg but what, what I'm waiting for is the next scripted by Cronenberg and yeah. to really sort of now, bring that back I enjoyed Eastern Promises a lot more um, yeah. I, I felt Eastern Promises kind of had the interest of the uh, of the Russian gang culture, the Russian mob culture, and you know the, what the tattoos meant and all that sort of. There's more body aspects. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Again, it's being represented. And by the, that. The, the amazing scene that everyone talks about yes. in the bathhouse, which yeah. is <laughs> far and away the greatest scene in the film. It's a stunning, mm. yeah, stunning scene. The, the nude fight in the bathhouse is uh, epic. Um, yeah, I, I I had a lot more investment in, in Eastern Promises than I did with um, History of Violence. But yeah, they feel very separated from, from his themes and concerns. What did you think of Eastern Promises, Lee? I, I'm a huge fan. I think it starts in a very odd way and I wasn't really on board. It's one of the few films that doesn't particularly start well but really improves as it goes along. And uh, History of Violence, I, I liked the first time and loved the second time. I think it, it works much better on a, a second viewing. But look, I'm, I'm gl- so glad he's still making films because he's a guy yeah. who's he, he's just so interesting and he's always interesting even in his lesser moments. 
He's always somebody you have to watch. So thank you so much for coming on and enlightening me to Cronenberg. <laughs> My pleasure. This has been thank you so much. It's great. And yeah, you've got to check out more of uh, Dr. Josh Nelson's reviews. Go to our website, hellisforhyphenates.com, and we'll have a link to his brilliant blog. Filmology. Mm. And That's in the cool. meantime, we will see you uh, next month. Long live the new flesh. <laughs> Keep watching stuff. So.